Traditional financial planning is now becoming outdated. Most investors will tell you the taxes will be much higher 30 years from now. Are you taking a proper balanced approach to financial planning and tax savings? Denver Noez is going to discuss with you in this episode how you should take both a defensive and an offensive approach to your tax savings and financial planning strategies. Denver and Joe talk about the different strategies you can use, like setting up your own foundation based on you or your family's interests. Let's just get right down to business. Joe Show. This, this is the Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. Hello, Denver. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving our listeners some insights about your background. Hey, thanks, Joe. It's great to be here today. Yeah, I've been a financial advisor for about 20 years now, an advisor and fiduciary. And, and, and while all that stuff is great, most of what I learned about the financial side came from the real world. Taking care of my mom, my dad, my grandma, they all got hit with health issues later on in life. Uh, my dad owned a pest control business, had it for you know 40 some years, still in the family today. But I watched him as a business owner getting hit with taxes and running a small business and having issues where, you know, the freaking IRS came to his house, you know, and sat on his couch and audited him, you know, and ridiculous stuff. And then he got hit with health issues later on in life, ended up taking care of him until he passed. Uh, Same with my mom and my grandma. And, And so when you go through all this stuff, you realize that a lot of ways people are taught to plan isn't exactly how the world goes, you know. So a lot of that conventional wisdom just doesn't work as well. So I've spent kind of the last 20 years fine tuning that and just taking all the insights I learned from all these super successful clients that I have and all the real world planning. And it works out to be a lot different than what we're taught. Would you say sometimes that that, uh, when you say taught is really just a lack of education, right? Because up up till now, I felt like we've never really been educated on how to properly plan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it is. And then some, it's so outdated. Like the world is so different than it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Right. So you got to plan differently. There's what I call traditional financial planning and then modern financial planning, which is like a lot of the stuff you incorporate, you're incorporating real estate and crypto, and there's all these other asset classes and incorporating businesses. And those are the skills that I don't think are taught. Everyone's just told, Hey, go invest in the stock market. And again, nothing wrong with the market. I love the market. It's great. A lot of ways to make money in it, but that's not where I see most of the wealth coming from. Usually wealth is being made somewhere else and coming to the market and the market is just an addition to it. So typically what areas do you focus on with your clients when they first come to you? So a lot of times I'm going to see like the, the younger entrepreneur, maybe their thirties and forties, they're working in tech, they're making a good amount of money. And the first thing we're always looking at is how do you plug the tax hole? Because when, as you know, like you start getting income, you know, taxes start just eating away at that. And if you don't have a strategy for that, it's going to suck away 30, 40, 50% of your wealth. So you start looking at the good strategies like Puerto Rico, residential real estate, you know, and all the other things you can do to, to eliminate those taxes. And then once from there, then you start building like a foundation of creating multiple income streams. And a lot of times I view it as offense and defense. And people are, I think when they're younger, they're always taught, hey, just go on the offense, you know, and just take risks because you're young, you have time. But then, you know, people get emotional, they start losing money and then, you know, it doesn't go the right direction. So it's better to, you got to have this mix of offense and defense. And there's not a sport you can go out and play where you don't have defense. And so then we start looking at, okay, how do we set up a foundation of defense? So if if all the home runs we're swinging for don't don't make it, then the defense is still going to be there. You're going to be all right. And that helps people just mentally get in the game better so they don't get too emotional and make the wrong decisions, you know? So you're saying you like to have some asset diversification in case there's a volatility in certain part that it's offset by another area? 
hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, what I'll see too often is people follow a traditional line where they start making money. They hear about a couple of good stocks and then they go buy some <laughs> stocks, right? And then they go down you know, 30, 40%. Um, or they hear about some land deal or some, you know, hard money loan, or, you know, they do something crazy and it's like, now, nah, you know, maybe you're gonna buy some residential real estate. Maybe you're gonna get some, you know, Airbnbs going, you know, or, or some of the other, like the tax-free matching program we use where we're using leverage. Leverage, people a lot of times think it is risk, but actually leverage is risk reducing. If you lose it, use it in the right way, it gives you a safer, you know, kind of dollar amount to earn. So the example would be is if you go out there and you're trying to earn 12, 13, 15%, you're taking risks. Why don't you use other people's money and get a five or six percent of return, but now because you're using other people's money, you get a larger asset. It's going to earn more interest, and you're going to be in a better position. But you're doing that safer than just chasing the risk. What do you see as the top problems people face when they first come to you? Well, I think it's too many chasing too many rabbits, right? You know, they got a little over here, a little over there, a little over there, and none of it's kind of coordinating. And sometimes people don't even know where their accounts are. You know, they've changed jobs five or six times. And they're like a little IRAs over here, little IRAs over there and 401ks and all these things. And, and you, so you get that consolidated, you know, that's number one. And then realizing that growing their income is a big part of the plan. And I don't think financial advisors talk about that enough, but you got to grow your income and it's not, so it could be job, it could be increasing skills, increasing knowledge. They could be um, networking, building partnerships, relationships. So business opportunities open up. It could be real estate, you know, diving into some of the other things like blockchain and crypto and all that stuff. I mean, there's so many opportunities there. So you got to get a few of those going, but have a game plan to do it. Not that I'm saying, hey, there's, if you just, someone just has a job, they're making a couple hundred thousand a year and they're able to save 40, 50 grand a year and, and put that away. Great. We'll show them a better way to do that. How do you invest better in stocks? Great. Let's do that. How do you get some tax-free programs going? Let's do that. So some of that is just funneling that direction. You know what I mean? Getting everything in line. Now, as far as, you know, structuring all their assets or ownership within certain vehicles, whether that's trusts, wills, and so forth, you know, do you have any recommendations there or what people should do? Yeah. So, you know, if you were always kind of imagined it as a pyramid, right, you're setting up this baseline of assets. And so if you think of the defensive assets, they can also be offensive, but you think of things like residential real estate, you know, you're putting those in LLCs. Uh, if you create digital assets um, that you're selling on Puerto Rico, obviously is amazing for that. Tax rates are killer. There's other tax-free matching programs that we use where we kind of use a, a lender match. It's a three-to-one lender match where the insurance companies guarantee it and the banks match three-to-one. So that one's held in an insurance trust. So an example, if someone goes in and they put in, they're saving 50 grand a year, they do that for five years, 250 grand, the bank's going to match 750. So now you create this million-dollar tax-free asset that's sitting in a trust and then that's going to produce tax-free income. And then those are those are usually the basics. You know, IRAs, 401ks, those things, the beneficiary designations on those trump probate anyway. So those don't necessarily need to go to a trust. And then once people start making, you know, larger amounts of money, so like a million plus, then you start looking at creating your own private foundations. Those some have some of the best tax benefits around. You can deduct 30% of income. You know, everyone always thinks like the big Gates Foundation, Clinton <laughs> Foundation, right? So the reason people love those is because they're traveling all over the world on the dime of their foundation and they're putting all that money in there and that whole thing now is tax-free. And so that's a dynamite way to do it. You need to get income. You know, I would say your tax liability needs to be five, 600,000, you know, to get there. But, you know, even you can start a foundation with a quarter million dollars a year and the technology, the FinTech now that's there used to be a nightmare to do that. 
But now the technology that's there is you basically create a tech hub, you have your own foundation, a lot of rules, you know, and stuff you jump through, but the, the technology makes it so easy that anyone can do that. That's interesting. Let's, let's hit on that just another minute because, uh, you know, what are, you know, some out of the box thoughts on like how people could utilize a foundation, you know, for investments or for giving or whatever it may be that they might not be thinking of right now. Yeah. So the idea behind foundations is you take what, you know, when you look at people that are getting into the top 1%, you know, I always ask people like, how hard is it to get in the top 1%? Well, only 1% make it right. But it's like, it's really hard. And you think like, man, I got my kids and I don't want to screw them up by giving them a ton of money and all this other thing. So you, you, the idea behind a foundation is you take the things you're passionate about and you take the values and beliefs that you have, the things that made you successful and you say, okay, how am I going to make that world a better place? And it could be something as simple, um, like my wife and I, we're going to be starting a foundation for teaching kids how to ride horses because my wife loves to ride horses. It could be teaching kids entrepreneurship. It could be, you know, doing something with foster care, you know, so you pick charities and stuff and, it, you know, that have your ideas and beliefs. And you say, all right, the purpose of my charity is we're going to teach kids how to ride horses. So now that's the goal of your foundation. And then the IRS says, all right, 5% of all the money that goes in every year needs to be spent on teaching kids how to do horses, you know, how to ride horses. But you can really create any idea and anything that you're passionate about that you think the world will be, make the world better and put those values and beliefs in there and say, okay, this is our mission. And then each year you just need to spend 5% of everything that you put in your foundation on the mission. So that's different than just doing a charity where you're just handing money off. You actually become the charity. And so that means you can pay yourself a salary. You can pay your wife a salary or your significant other. And then you're going to buy assets in support of the mission of the foundation. You can buy the assets. Now you're doing all that with tax-free money because it's inside the foundation. And then as you get older, a lot of people think like, well, maybe now I'm in my career and I'm doing other things. So you can certainly just distribute 5% a year to different charities. And then maybe when you get retired, say you've built up this huge foundation nest egg, there's a couple million bucks in it. Then you retire and pay yourself out of the foundation and start doing that foundation's work. Uh, then you can put your kids on the payroll, you know, and we, we talk about it all the time. Well, I don't think my kid, you know, someone said uh, high net worth kids, right? You know, tens of millions of dollars. My kids are screwed up. They're never going to do anything, <laughs> right? Okay, well, maybe the grandkids will. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know. Like, I think about things like, like Prince. How great would it be to go to the Prince's school of music where, you know, Prince is teaching music to people for generations? Well, that'd be great, except it's not going to happen because he didn't set up a foundation and he didn't even have a will. And it's all going to be squandered to people fighting over and attorneys and everything else. And it's like he could have set up his own foundation that said, you know, what, we're going to teach, you know, um, music and, you know, all that type of stuff for generations to come. And so I like to try and plant the seed of people of generational wealth. And I, you know, it's not that we all want, we all want our kids to work hard. We all want them to do well, but it's hard to make it in the top 1%. You know, it's hard to get there. And so when you get there, you want to think like, can this be a springboard to where I can create generational wealth? Can I create a family dynasty? And there's probably no better tool for that than the foundation, because even if, you know, you can set your metrics that, you know, people come work for the foundation, your kids do, but, like I said, maybe it's not one of your kids things, but it might be the grandkid and the grandkid, you know, thinks back and looks back and goes, wow, man, what, what uncle Denver did back then, or, you know, grandpa Denver did was really cool. And it's nice to still be working on that mission. So 
you can really create it around anything you want. Animals, you know, charity, entrepreneurship, sports, you know, so much you can do with it. No, with that rule of uh, expensing 5% a year, can't that typically include most of the operating expenses to fulfill that mission too, correct? 100%, Meaning- yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So in, in theory, like I, you know, had a client that he teaches golf for kids, right? So he buys golf clubs, he goes on golf trips, you know, and all and golf lessons, like all that stuff is expensed. And, you know, there's obviously rules on self-dealing and you want to make sure that you're providing value and doing things, but there is a lot of flexibility. And, you know, again, you see the high profile ones and that's what, that's what they're doing. It's like, yeah, we're going to a, you know, we're going to a training. It's two days. It's in Puerto Rico. Well, you know, you're, you're expensing that whole trip to Puerto Rico, you know, that's good. And tip, and you're saying with uh, the way technology is today, it's pretty cost efficient for people to set up and manage on an annual basis. Yeah. It'll typically work out to about 2% of the net assets in the foundation. So you got a million bucks in there, whatever it's going to cost 2%. Um, and that's the tax filing, the technology hub, you know, they do all the paperwork, you know, some really great sources, uh, foundation sources who I like for that. So they have some great resources, and, you know, they charge 2%, quarter million a year to set up or quarter, 250,000 initially funded, set it up. But then you don't even have like a defined benefit plan or some of these other things. You don't even have this ongoing commitment. You could fund it to a certain level one year, not the next year. You can put highly appreciated assets in there, real estate and other things. So that's one good, one good avenue. Well, I definitely like that. Those insights there. That was very helpful. I think, you know, most people are not aware of, you know, that avenue to set up a foundation and kind of how it can be cost effective and the benefits over the long term. Yeah. So what, uh, I guess, with, you know, let's move on to the other aspect is, you know, is there any point in anyone looking at setting up any type of uh, irrevocable type non-grantor or grantor trust as their with their assets and their family? So it depends. I think uh, once assets, you know, you start getting over probably 5 million, it used to be 10, you know, but now we, things are going to change, but you know, I, it depends on the structure. So like with different businesses, like it depends if it's business entities. A lot of times those are better in different corporate structures. And then a lot of times I'm more looking at it from the tax standpoint. Like, can we move some of those assets into more favorable tax places versus their irrevocable trust and things like that. So I don't see a lot of, you know, a lot of the trust stuff done until people get north of 10 million. Um, and at that point, you know, then it can make sense. You know, you're putting, typically there's going to be a lot of real estate and other assets in there. You're putting insurance contracts and stuff in there and you're going to try and cover the long-term estate needs. So when you get over 10 million and that's going to be every, every case on that's going to be a little bit different. And at that level, you got some pretty good involvement of attorneys and, you know, you're, and some of the better tax professionals, which are hard to find too, but. Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, it's hard. I mean, that's kind of the, what we've seen amongst my friends, you know, you kind of start out a, what an, let's call it a normal CPA doing the tax returns. And then, you know, you're, you start, your net worth keeps increasing and then all of a sudden you're not getting uh, good information. And then you, you're looking for that person and it's hard to find. It's hard to yeah. find. Yeah. So what, uh, I, you know, let's, you know, when it, when we go back to the basics of, um, maybe just asset protection and so forth, you know, when people are starting to have their family, you know, what are those basics that they should be looking at implementing right away? Yeah. One of the basic ones is just the simple umbrella liability policy. Cause no matter how, you know, you do your structures of LLCs and everything else, you're really always your first defense is those simple umbrella liability policies. Right. And they're not that expensive. You know, a few hundred bucks a year, you get a million or $2 million umbrella and you put that over everything. That's always going to be the first line of defense. Because no matter how you set up corporate structures, there's some attorneys going to find some way to break them. 
And, you know, usually unless you're, you know, unless you have 10 LLCs and, you know, different corporations and everything else, but that's overkill for most people. So just the pure asset protection, put the real estate in LLCs, typically separate LLCs, especially if you're renting them, right? And then just get a, a solid umbrella policy, put that over everything. Uh, and that's going to cover most, you know, most issues. And then if you have, you know, it gets different if you start having businesses, right? Then you're going to separate those out in different corporate entities and depending on how you're structuring it from a tax standpoint too. But really the umbrella liability is going to cover most, most needs. So for the subscribers and their personal, let's say life and family, you know, should they start out with a basic term policy just to get started? That kind of covers everything in the event that one spouse dies or what is your recommendation? Yeah. So on life policies, you know, different than an umbrella liability policy, two, two separate things. So life insurance policies depends on what you're going to use it for. If you're just wanting death benefit protection, yeah, I need to cover my income. Yeah. Then you buy cheap term, you know, 20 year term. And the key with that, you know, 98, 99% of term policies never pay out because, right, the people don't die in the 20 years. So that does cause problems down the road because then people are like 20 years down the road, they still need insurance. Now it costs five times as much. So depending on income, if income, once income starts to get over 100 grand and then over 200 grand, then sometimes we're using some of the index life strategies with the tax free matching because those kind of work like an unlimited Roth. Now, that being said, there's, there's a lot of crappy life insurance policies out there, a lot of bad strategies, but if you set it up right, um, it works like an unlimited Roth and you can use that lender match program. The insurance products will use call options for growth. So they have really good growth potential. And, you know, like the example I gave you earlier in the show, you're dropping in 50 grand a year for five years, maybe 250. Well, now the lender is putting in 750. So now you have a million dollars that's accumulating tax-free inside what's called an index life insurance policy. There's other things to that. You're blending it with term insurance, keep the cost super low, but that creates a massive tax-free asset. So if you're trying to create more tax-free income, household incomes over 200K, that strategy is hard to beat from a rate of internal rate of return you know, standpoint. And it provides a death benefit protection, does all that. But most of the time we're doing with that is we're, we want that tax-free income stream on the way out. So when you get down 15, 20 years down the road, you know, you might have 50 or a hundred thousand a year tax-free that can come out from that strategy as like a pension. Same thing you would use as like rental income. You're building up these multiple layers of income streams. So if someone's income is at a higher level, we're probably looking at the matching strategy. And if they're not, then we're just, yeah, cheap term. And can you break down the, like when you say matching strategy, just give us the real life scenario. Like, uh, you know, John puts in X amount for whatever and what's going to occur. Yeah. So uh, one of my clients, tech executive at one of the big tech firms, you know, he's putting, he's about 45 years old, putting in 50 grand a year. So he, you know, you develop a funding schedule. So he's going to put in 50 grand a year. The bank is going to then match that 100% years one through five. So he puts in 50, bank puts in 50. And what do you mean by match? Is that a a, a premium finance type of thing? Or what do you mean by match? Yeah. So it's similar to premium finance. It's a, it's an offshoot of it because the problem with premium finance, we used to be like you were, you're financing hundred percent of a house. And if you finance hundred percent of a house, there's a lot of risk. But in this case, it's basically 50-50. You're putting in 50%, banks putting in 50%. So now there's technically no more premium finance because you're not on hook for the loan. You and the bank are just agreeing to put hundred grand a year and it goes to an insurance company. The insurance company guarantees it and not you. So like for those people that don't know what premium finance is, you have to have a lender, you have to get approved, there's ongoing financial underwriting. And this structure, since it's a 50-50, 
There's no financial underwriting. There's no personal guarantees for the money. Uh, all that's really in the guarantees from the insurance company. And that's why people love that structure. So now you fund it for five years. It's 50-50. Then the bank funds it 100% for the next six, you know, year six through 10. So they're going to put in 100000 a year, year six through 10 to get to you about three to one max. So you put in 250, banks put in 750. And again, because of that equity structure, there's no financing, there's no loan, you know, you're not on the hook for the loan, none of that stuff. Then bank's gonna give you a rate, typically LIBOR plus 1.75. These money's gonna grow in the insurance company. They're gonna use call options. So that's market indexes, typically capture 80% of the upside of the stock market, but it has a 0% floor. So it can't be, you know, there's no, it's guaranteed against market losses. So those are going to typically average six to 8%. So to put it all together, it's kind of simply like you buy real estate, you're buying it at this rate, the real estate's going to appreciate at a larger rate. Now you've got this larger asset because it's under the umbrella of insurance, it's all tax-free. And then you, the bank is paid off out of the policy itself. And then you take a tax-free income stream and that will you know, go for the rest of your life. So the so tech executive, he's uh, planning to put 250 in, right? Personally out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And the bank's extending the balance, right? Yep. And what's his plan at what age to do what and kind of what does that look like? Yeah. So he's getting around 90000 a year, you know, when he starts taking income at 65. Okay. And then that, so, that is taxable at that time. Tax-free. So. That is tax-free, the withdrawals there? Yep. Okay. There yep. we go. All yep. right. And then, if there's, and then if there's any death benefit that still exists, that would go to whoever, if he passed away. Yeah, so they'll typically calculate the income for 30 years. They'll say 65 to 90. So they'll get 90,000 a year for 30 years, 2.7 million. Then there's roughly about, you know, seven, 800,000 in death benefit left that goes to his heirs. So he's at about what, 3.5 in, 3.5 out for his 250 in. I mean, that's typically what we'll see on a, on a ROI return on capital. All right. I think that was, that was well put and uh, a great, <laughs> another kind of great a example. Strategy. The first time people hear it, they're like, and, and you said that, what, what do you, how do you name, what do you name that one? That's our tax free matching program. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's about two and a half billion funded. It's not a new program. And you have, you know, you have one of the largest insurance companies in the world guaranteeing the money. So it's not like a, you know, kind of a, one of the riskier assets. We put that in the defensive strategy. It's pretty safe. Minimums are typically anywhere from 20 grand a year. If someone starts at window of 30, you know, they got income over 100K and they can put in 20 grand a year. It's ridiculous what the income looks like at, you know, 65, probably 150,000. I mean, it's, you know. And then the idea is then you've freed up all this capital because what, what happens with people, they get stuck in this mentality of they're always saving for retirement. They're not sure what's going to happen. They're uncertain. And so they miss out on opportunities. So the idea, again, behind defense is now if I've, if I've taken as little of my assets as I can and secured my baseline, now all the rest of my capital is freed up for opportunity. And then you just, and that's kind of has this snowball effect on wealth because you're like, oh, my bases are covered. I'm going to invest over here. I'm going to buy some more real estate. I'm going to do some more digital stuff. You know, all that other things, it opens up and you free up more capital because you let the bank pay for most of your retirement. You know, you use the bank money just like you do when you buy a house. And they, they also have some uh, access to any portion of that cash value or anything during that period or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All so right, it's well. a no risk deal for the bank. They love it. And then you have the guarantees. So it's kind of like, if you can get that five-year thing done, forget it. You know, you just secured your, your future income. So it's a pretty, pretty gives you a lot of peace of mind. And great tax benefits. 
tax free. Yeah. <laughs> so let's roll into other uh, since we're you know discussing tax. Let's roll into other areas you know that you love when it comes to saving taxes. What are some of your you know, the next best one? So I like the you know we have the accelerated depreciation on rental real estate right now, right? Which everyone is familiar with the traditional depreciation, but the accelerated where you can depreciate like the fixtures and the AC units and the landscaping. And from what we've seen, that's typically like 25, 30% of the price of the house. So you go out and you buy a $300,000 house, you know, you can probably take a, you know, 60 to $90,000 immediate depreciation on that. So that can, there's a good way to, and you practically pay for that, you know, if you're in a higher tax bracket, just from the tax savings. That one is pretty good. I think, I'm, I think that one ends though in another year, I'll have to double check, but that one is a pretty good one. We covered foundations. Deferred sales trust is, is another one that doesn't get used a lot. But if you have highly appreciated assets, whether you're selling a business or selling highly appreciated real estate, you can actually use what's called a deferred sales trust. You can sell that into your trust. Then you can use the trust to basically make installment payments back to yourself. So you can soften that tax hit instead of taking it all at once. You can spread it out over four to five years. Uh, that's an underutilized strategy. Then you start getting into stuff that's a little more controversial, like conservation easement. You know, conservation easements. Uh, are you familiar with those? Uh, syn- yeah, syndication, basically, right? You're syndicating yeah. kind of that, uh, you know, selling off the, the easements. But I mean, give us the 30 second L pitch there. Yeah. So if you, if you do it right, you know, basically you're saying, Hey, we're going to take this piece of land. We're going to turn it into an environmental project. We're not going to develop it. And they've been abused like crazy. So like you said, syndications where people would put $1 in and they're getting $10, you know, tax deduction for every dollar they put in. The IRS has really come down on them, which is too bad because there's actually some good ones. So if you're maybe, if you can get it down to maybe one to four or one to three, meaning $1 that you put in the easement, you get a $3 deduction. But, you know, those ones have just gotten tougher because now you're stamping your tax return with an IRS red flag, you know? So, <laughs> you know, you can make the case, like I've had, I had a client who talked to a CPA and his tax liability is a million dollars. So he's like, should I fight for, you know, try a conservation easement? And the guy's like, yeah, you're paying a million bucks in taxes. So if you save 300,000 and you win, you save 300,000. If you lose, you pay the 300,000, you know? So- I mean, that's part of the job, I think, when you start getting up in wealth is really understanding the tax code and just using everything you possibly can to reduce it, because that's going to be the biggest drain on wealth. So when it comes to retirement accounts and self-directed accounts, you know, what are, what are the best strategies you've seen that worked there? So I'm obviously on the fan of tax-free side. So Roth, to me, is better. Most of the higher net worth you know, people I work with, we all tend to think taxes are going to be higher in the future. So if, if you're in your 30s and 40s and you're putting something in a 401k that you're not going to access till you're 59 and a half, so that's when the rules start. And you're like, wow, tax is going to be lower or higher in 30 years from now. And do I really want to, you know, have all my money stuck in something I can't access till I'm, you know, maybe 55, most likely 59. So I'm a little middle of the road on those. I think if you have matching from a company, right, you take the pre-matching. And ideally, you want to think of things like tax buckets. You got three tax buckets, taxable money, tax-deferred money, tax-free money. So tax-deferred, 401k, IRA, SEP, deferred comp, defined benefit plan, all those things, you get a tax deduction now, but you're going to pay ordinary income tax when it, when it comes out. And that's the biggest thing that people overlook is I've even had people say, what, my 401k is taxable when I take it out? Yes, it's taxable when you take it out. It's not just tax of capital gains, it's taxes income, right? So- if your house is paid off, you get down to retirement, your kids are gone, you don't have any deductions, now you're paying, you know, who knows what, 25, 35, 40% off every withdrawal. And it's just something that people don't plan to. They get down to retirement, they think they got $2 million. 
but 40% of that's going to the government, you know? So try and have a balanced approach, put some money in the 401k taxable, but really build up whether it's Roth, Roth 401k, Roth IRA. Most Roth IRAs, you, you know, you can't move the needle with a $6,000 contribution, right? The limits are too small. Most people, and a lot of the people we deal with make too much money to do them anyway. So you can try the backdoor Roths or you use the tax-free matching strategies that, you know, it's talking about, but try and get a balanced approach. Some money in the tax deferred and more money in the tax-free. So... Do you advise a lot of your clients to do the backdoor uh, conversion, pay the tax now, and have the ability to use that capital in those alternative investments that will hopefully do better than the market over the long term? Yeah, I think that can be a good strategy. Then you know you're looking at what their yearly income is, and if the yearly income is you know a certain level, again, we're just being mindful and cut. Sometimes you just run the math and you calculate. Yeah, should we pay the taxes now? But I would say I see that a lot in clients in the 30s and 40s, and I love the fact now you can use you know, IRAs and alternatives. And there's so many other ways to use IRAs besides the stock market. So like crypto, blockchain, all that stuff, real estate, businesses, you can even create your own corporation, use that, create shares in the IRA, self-directed, use that share to fund your own business. You know, so there's a lot of creative things you can do outside of that. Now, those are all good options. Yeah. I know that, you know, we all are going to have multiple different presidents in the office before we get to retirement, maybe, or at least until we die and that anything could change at any time. You know, how do you kind of advise clients on that in general, you know, whether they change the Roth rules or whatever? Yeah. I mean, from the investing side, we always tell people presidents don't really matter that much. You know, the markets don't really care. They're going to spend money and, you know, more looking at the overall economic picture. And sometimes presidents get lucky. They hit an economic cycle and other presidents don't, you know, taxes is one of the bigger ones. Obviously that's the bigger threat. So that's the one we tend to focus on most. And that's where getting money into tax reposition. So typically if you're in strategies, it's going to be grandfathered in. So if you have more money in Roth, that's better. If you have more money in tax-free life insurance strategies, that's better. What they're going to do with the limits and all that stuff, you know, who knows? So I think most of the time, I, what I hear from clients is where they say, hey, I just want to make sure that in the future, I don't have the IRS on my back and you know, in my business, right? So setting up those strategies to do that as, as quick as possible. But I think at the end of the day, having more money tax-free, more of a balanced approach. And that's the biggest problem I see is when, when someone gets down to a certain age, even, even when they're still working 45, 50 years old, maybe they've done great. And that, you know, they had a million bucks in a 401k and they're 45 and they want to invest in a company, but all their money is, you know, stuck in the 401k and they can't get it you know, without borrowing and the loan rates and all that. So it's just creating flexibility where you're, even though you could don't go all in on tax deferred, you know, create some other money and other assets outside of those retirement accounts. Like a lot of stuff you do, you know, real estate and everything else and, and um, crypto and blockchain. That all that stuff's still, you know, risky. I love crypto and blockchain. We'll have to talk about that sometime because I'd love to get your insights on that too. I like, to, you know, it's, it's it's interesting to see the different approaches, right? Because, you know, institutionals, institutions say volatility is bad for their portfolio. So yeah. you're, you're kind of typically in the, whatever you want to call it, five to 12% range, right? Yeah. But then someone like myself is like, volatility is actually good because typically volatility means greater returns over a longer period. I mean, it could yeah. be greater losses too, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, what's your take there? Because uh, you know, from what I'm seeing is that if, if you're kind of in the right assets, you know, volatility can be your friend. I mean, even if we look at some of the Amazon over the last 20 years or, you know, some of these tech companies, right? Like, you know, they've had 50, 70% drawdowns, but yet they're up 10, 20, 50, 100 X. 
Yep. Yeah. I am a hundred percent with you. Volatility is your friend. And the reason that people fear volatility is uh, specifically talking about stocks is because most portfolios and everything stocks are set up just terribly. And I think one of the disservices has been buying indexes and people have been taught indexing is the best way to do things, right? 500 stocks in the S and P 500, 50% of them are probably crap companies, not very good or maybe mediocre at best. And then on the downside, you know, 25% of them are probably zombies, right? Their cost of servicing their debt is, is higher than their earnings. So now you're looking at 75% of the S&P is mediocre to poor. 25% of those are the winners. So just do the work and identify the winners. And really, even out of that 25%, you probably only want 5%. And so you just got to do your, you know, that's where what has gone, it's gone away from people that they've been told this mentality by the index but what they really want is advisors and people that are doing the research and saying, find me the companies, learn about the companies. That's what we do. We look at the debt structure. We look at the assets, cash flow. Do they have a moat? Are they in the pole position? One of those number one or two companies. And then you're buying that stock. And when you're buying that stock, volatility is your friend. Because when volatility happens, great. We just got a great company on sale for 20%. And we're just going to keep buying more. Uh, and that's how, like during COVID, I mean, we pounded that strategy and we were up, you know, 110% or whatever for the year. It was a great year. And then I see other portfolios come in and people are like, you know, in their 60, 40 muddled stuff, nothing really happening because, you know, you don't even know what you own. It's full of junk. It's, I don't know. I don't know how people got sold a bill of goods to buy crap companies. And just like you think about not to pick on, you know, I'll, I won't name company names, but you think about like some of the terrible companies we know about in the financial sector, banking in particular. Someone goes and puts money in their 401k, that's in an index fund. The CEO of the bank is going, hey, I just got more capital. Somebody just bought more of my crappy stock. You know, like, I mean, I know it's supposed to be easier, but I don't know. I'm not a fan of that. I like volatility. I think at the end of the day, what a lack, like a, a lack of education, but also maybe a lack of responsibility, you know, where people don't take the time to get educated on how to best manage your own capital. And it's put to advisors, you know, for the 1% fee or whatever it may be. And obviously they just put it somewhere that gives them whatever the minimum that they need to do. And I think uh, people are going to wake up to that more and more as we move forward and maybe less people can retire or they're not hitting their target goals. I, I hopefully they'll, those parents will educate their kids in a different fashion. Yeah, I agree. I think that the market was, it was originally designed, you're supposed to be investing in companies, you're rewarding capital, you know, just like investing in business, you would walk down the street, you would look at the business and you would, you know, see what's going on. You wouldn't just say, let me just put money in the whole block. Right. <laughs> So, and like, and I look at like the, the individual stocks and things like that, like people can do it on their own. They can learn to do individual stocks, right? And there's great ways to do that. There needs to be more advisors out there that are back to doing that instead of, like you said, like I was taught you as you buy the stuff off the shelf. Like you go in, you contract with an advisory firm. Here's your basket of mutual funds you sell. And I came from a different background, having seen my mom lose money in the market and get taken advantage of. So I'm looking at these strategies going, why would I sell this? Like, it's crap. You know what I mean? Like you're showing me a mutual fund that hasn't beaten the market in 10 years. Why would I possibly sell this? You know? And so that's where it took me years to get to find the right team of, of again, just, but it's old school Buffett style. Buffett with a modern twist, I would say. <laughs> more the but you just, you do your research, you find individual companies, you do the homework. You're going to be wrong sometimes, but I mean, we don't hold typically more than 15 to 20 stocks. You know, that's it. 
And we changed it and we rotate it, you know, and yeah, we're putting our heads out there. We're saying the only thing that matters is performance. We either grow the money or we don't. And that's what I've found like in the advising business, people really want. If there's someone's managing their money, you know, like we don't try and be the cheapest, but we're saying we're going to outperform. And if we don't outperform, then our, you know, our butt's on the line. But most stuff is kind of like, you can't even tell how much people are earning and they don't know if they're making money. And like you said earlier, it's like mediocre. So I think my hope is, and then you go to Robinhood. Now you got me rambling on this, but you go to Robinhood and it's almost too easy because it's game of five. So you can like buy stocks and like, wait a second, I just lost 30%. You know? So you got to have a, a little middle ground. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what plays out. There's a whole, obviously we're watching the news and, you know, with Robinhood and all the different things they're adding to their platform. We'll see what happens this year as uh, more money enter, enters the system. Yeah. One of the things I see the most is maybe that either entrepreneurs are too busy running their businesses daily um, or even families or anybody kind of doesn't really pay attention to proper estate planning or take the time out. They don't know how to find the right person. They don't want to actually make the decisions on if they're going to die. How do you help people get to the other side to, you know, take care of that? Oh man, that's a tough one. I mean, cause no one wants to, you know, it usually takes a life event, unfortunately, like family members, somebody else, something happens close to them where they're like, holy crap, I got to take care of this. And we all, and that's happened for me. It's happened like, you know, I wish there was a way to kind of get people to take action sooner. But if you simplify the steps, you know, you have the basic will. If you have kids, you have, a, you know, some cheap term life insurance, if nothing else, you have a medical power of attorney, durable power of attorney, set up the, you know, what happens if you and your wife are killed and, you know, you, you got the kids, so who's going to take care of them? So just a couple simple documents to put that together. And that's the starting step. And you just take the first step is the easy one. Usually by the time people get to me, they're in action mode, you know, and whether they've seen some of my posts or podcasts or videos or whatever. Um, but and then as they start to get a little more income, you know, they kind of start doing that stuff. So it, it is kind of a natural evolution. I don't know if I have the, the magic answer though. I'm getting people to take action. To it. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, usually it's some, some event that uh, sparks the, the momentum, right? Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate uh, everything. And, you know, is there any other thoughts that you want to leave us with, you know, in regards to today's conversation? No, it's a great conversation. I do want to chat with you again and hear about some of your real estate strategies and how you use Puerto Rico. And we can talk about that. There's some great opportunities there. I appreciate it. And, you know, our final question for our listeners is what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Oh, I would say it's creating multiple streams of income. So that way, you know, again, it frees you up for opportunities. And most importantly, it lets you pass on opportunities. Hmm. Like there's some things you might take for short-term money and it's like, wait a second, I don't need the short-term money. So let me just think that through. And is there a better opportunity? Is that just going to waste my time and be a lead bird, you know, or whatever? So I think that has been really helpful. It took a while to do it, but once you're there, it just, it just helps you focus on better long-term opportunities, right? The short game, covering the income, the long game, building wealth. And so that's helped really having multiple streams helped me open up my focus. All right. I appreciate that. And if anyone wants to get a hold of you to discuss your services or have any questions, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So they can go to wealthforlife.net. That's the main website. Uh, it's wealthforlife.net, or they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just Denver Noahs and uh, they can search me on there on LinkedIn or Twitter as well. So I'm on LinkedIn most of the time. I do a lot of posts on there and then we have the podcasts and videos that we can find on golfforlife.net. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate you coming out, Denver. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Joe Robert Show.